Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Miss Reason Show. Um, our host, Marie, is um, under the weather, so it's just going to be me here. Um, I'm Jay, but we still have a very special show for you today. We have Bob um, Abramson, and I really hope I'm saying this correctly. And uh, Bob is an award-winning journalist, a law firm partner, master storyteller, and a dynamic public speaker and a business coach. Um, so we we have a lot to talk about with Bob today. Hey, Bob, are you there? I am. Thanks for having me on today. Thanks for coming, Bob. Um, how was your day? It was it was really good. I got a haircut. I'm packing up because I'm taking my kids to Chicago for the weekend, and I'm giving my wife four days by herself, no kids. You are such an awesome husband, Bob. Well, uh, for the for today I am. Uh, we'll, we'll see right. when I come back, you know, uh, what, 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 what state the kids are going to be in. Um, I'm sure they're going to have uh, some sugar in there. Um, not as much sleep as we would like, and uh, but we're going to have a lot of fun. Well, I, you know, I have some small children, and I think the best thing is when, you know, they don't get enough sleep because by the time they get home, they're sleeping for, like, entire days at a time. <laughs> it, you know, just have a ball with them and tire them, tire, you know, them out, and I'm sure she'll still be appreciative on the fifth day. Yeah, that's the hope. That's the hope, right? Yeah. Okay, so um, if you don't mind, I'm just going to jump right in because I'm really excited to, um, you know, get get in touch with some of the things you have going on. So let's start at the very beginning. How did your fraternity experience um, change your, like in college, change your life? Well, thanks for asking. Um, You know, I grew up in Michigan, and my whole life I always wanted to attend the University of Michigan I was a huge football fan, idolized Bo Schembechler, and I ended up going there. And so the second semester, I decide to, you know, rush a couple of fraternities. And this one ended up picking me. And the, and the reason I liked it was because they didn't haze their pledges. They didn't make them, like, run around campus naked. They didn't make them um, do, like, 25 shots in a row. And, you know, I really like the guys. And I went through the entire pledge term, had a, a ton of fun. And with two weeks to go in my freshman year, we finally get to initiation day. And I'm excited to finally join the Brotherhood. But I'm a little bit nervous because you have no idea what to expect at these basic initiation and ceremonies because they don't tell you. They keep it very right. hush. And so I get there, and they lead me out into the main room of the fraternity house. And this place is gorgeous, right? It's got beautiful tall ceilings, nice wood, and I feel like I'm 50 feet up in the air. And I'm looking down, and there's like 45 fraternity brothers down there. They got black. They were all wearing black. They got black hoods on. It's kind of intimidating. 
And then, you know, what happened after that is kind of a blur because <laughs> one by one, they just, like, start firing all these questions at me, like, Bob, how come we didn't see you at the house for, like, four days? Bob, how come you didn't like your big brother? And I, I felt like I was getting hit from, like, 15 different directions, like an assault, even though, there, you know, there wasn't any weapons. Before I knew it, one guy stands up, and he says, Bob, you're done forever. Get out of here now. And I, I was, like, numb, like, level. I didn't know what to do. And I got up and just bolted out of that fraternity house for the last time in my life. And I wasn't even sure whether I should stop by because I knew we, I'd been with my other pledges in this room. And I, I just couldn't even face them. And I got outside and it's pouring rain out, pouring rain out. And I, I just remember like never crying so hard in my whole life and just trying to think, well, what just happened right there? Right. Why, why me? And why didn't I see it coming? And why didn't they tell me? And, you know, a lot of emotions going through your brain right there. And I was thinking on the way home, well, how am I going to explain this to my parents? What am I going to tell my friends? And and the, one of the worst parts was is that I had signed a lease already to live at that fraternity house the next year. Oh, wow. You know, oh, wow. I mean, so you figure you're getting in if you, you know, sign a lease to live somewhere. And so I had nowhere to live for the next year. And, you know, so I got back my dorm room which is about a mile away and after uh, a lot of crying a lot of self-reflecting I decided right then and there that I didn't know what was going to happen next in my life but I decided that that was never going to happen again and no matter what I did or where I went I was going to become a person who was indispensable, right? Coveted. So people would be asking me to their inner circles. And, and that was really kind of the tipping moment for me. Wow. That is seems That just sounds crazy. I hear, I hear a lot of uh, pledging stories from, you know, uh, sorority uh, women and, you know, frat guys and, you know, you hear about the hazing and you hear about, you know, all this crazy stuff they make them do, but you never really hear about stuff like that, you know? And I'm still confused about what really happened in that situation with you. That's just crazy. Yeah. You know, when I look back now, I still don't know why it happened. But uh, as you probably know, today I kind of thank them for doing that because it, it drove me a lot. Believe me, that 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 burns inside you, and you don't ever kind of let that memory fade away. And it's kind of like 
you know, Tom Brady, how mad he was being picked in the sixth round of the NFL draft, right? He even right. talked about it today. And so, you know, for a long time, I, I, I held a lot of anger about it. But, you know, today I look back on it and now I say, thanks, guys. You did me a favor. Right. Right. But, you know, a lot of times with the fraternities and the sororities, you have to fit into a certain mold anyway, you know, and you end up stuck in like a box of how you're supposed to be. Right. And maybe, you know, maybe one person didn't like me. Right. And that's all it takes sometimes. In, in these fraternities when they're trying to decide who's coming in and who's not. But to go through what I went through in front of all those people, that was just devastating. I mean, I have never felt lower in my life. I mean, just that is the penultimate rejection as I look back on it now. And what I realized is that I didn't need those guys. Like when you go to join a fraternity, you think that you need to, you need to have this. You want to be part of this amazing brotherhood, these incredible experiences that you won't get anywhere else. Well, guess what? If you have some close friends, you can have the same, if not better experiences. And that's what I learned. Right. Right, without all the rules and, you know, the, the mishaps. Well that's that's heavy. Um, okay, so let's let's go to something happier, hopefully. Um who are some of your favorite athletes to interview as a professional sports writer? Hmm. Well, I was a professional sports writer for seven years, right? And you know, I got I got lucky. I got a big break. When I was 21 years old, I was working at USA Today. And I appeared on page one, I think it's in July of 1994, for, for some stories I did. And you know what's funny is, you, you know, you, you probably think I'm going to say some high-end famous athlete, but the people I like, interview are not in usually the major sports and I'll tell you why because these people open themselves up a lot more because they don't get interviewed every five seconds they're happy to tell their stories and their stories are usually even better I mean one of my favorite interviews was Mia Hamm Um, she was on the US women's national soccer team one of the greatest soccer players ever and she's an incredible interview. And, I mean, I got to interview a lot of different people, like Earl Campbell, used to be an amazing running back for the Houston Oilers. Um, by the way, I did cover Tom Brady when I covered University of Michigan football for mm-hmm. five years. And, I mean, I knew he was good, but I don't think anyone could have predicted what he's done now because he was basically sharing time with another high profile quarterback during his, during his stay. And actually one of my favorite things that I've ever done is there's a great broadcaster in Detroit 
and I'm from Michigan, as you know. Um, his name's Ernie Harwell. And I got to sit in the booth and listen to him call a whole inning. And you got to understand, I grew up listening to him on the radio. And then to interview him was just, it was like a dream come true. So it, it's a fun life being a sports writer, I'll tell you that. How did that feel, um, you know, to interview him? How did that feel? Um, well, it feels like a dream. It feels amazing because, you know, you to listen to someone on the radio, but then to meet them in person and to see what an amazing guy he is. I mean, he, he was broadcasting for 40, 50 years. And just the absolute salt of the earth guy. And I just loved every minute of it, and I still remember it today. Well, that's awesome. You know, um, to, to in any profession, to meet your, you know, someone that you looked up to and, and possibly idolized has to be an amazing feeling. Um, so you, you did mention that you uh, covered the University of Michigan. Uh, what was it like to cover the national championship season? Sure. It was actually... So 1997 was my first year covering University of Michigan football. Now, I went to the University of Michigan as an undergraduate, as you as you know from earlier. So again, a lifelong dream to to cover this team. And then in my first season, it, it was just magical storybook. I mean, the team goes 12 and 0. They beat Ohio State, the big rival. Charles Woodson wins the Heisman Trophy. And I got to you know know these guys well because you're with them every week. You know the coaches, you know the coaches' wives. And you saw that they had a drive that was second to none. And what made them so good was they had one of the best defenses in the history of college football. And they had one of the best players, obviously, Charles Woodson. But when they crushed Penn State at Penn State, I knew they were going to go undefeated. And then I went back and covered them in the Rose Bowl and they were facing Ryan Leaf, who ended up being a, a top pick in the NFL draft. And they were down big in that game. And actually, if you ever get a chance to go see a football game, the Rose Bowl is the most beautiful stadium backdrop in, in the world with the, uh, the mountains in the back. And, you know, Michigan came back, held them off, and first national championship in 49 years. I, I, I claim that I'm the lucky charm because, you know, I, I was covering them. And, uh, <laughs> and we ended up, uh, my editor and I, we uh, co-authored a book on that season. We went back and interviewed the players after the season. And 
it ended up, I think we sold like 15,000 copies of it. Oh, that's and, awesome. And Lloyd Carr um, signed my book and gave me a nice note, and I still have it framed in my office. That is awesome. So here you are doing your dream job, and, you know, you, this was your dream job no matter what the season looked like, but then they're having the perfect season. Why would you leave that job? Well, I didn't leave it that season. Um, <laughs> and actually, I covered the hockey team, too, that year, and they won the national championship, too, same year, believe it or so not. So you might be the, the good luck charm, huh? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> so the reason I ended up getting out of journalism was not because this is something that I didn't want to do anymore. It, I basically saw the future before it happened, and I could tell that newspapers were dying in the early 2000s. And the reason they were dying is because of the Internet. The Internet was killing killing newspapers subscriptions were going way down the cost of paper was going way up and i i decided that i didn't want to be a dinosaur i didn't want to just be left out unemployed i mean the ann arbor news which had been around since michigan in 1850 gone another paper in colorado gone and and there's several and I sat down one day with my dad, and I was going to go to PR school, public relations. And right. I, I kind of pitched the idea to my dad, right? And he looked at me over breakfast, and he says, the hell you are. He goes, <laughs> you're, you're going to make the same amount of money, which is not much, uh, as a journalist, um, as you as you are now, you need, here's what you need to do. You should go to law school because you can write, which is a big part of being a lawyer. And if you get a law degree, nobody can ever take that away from you. You'll be employed the rest of your life. And you know what I did? I signed up the next day for the Kaplan course to take the LSAT. All right. Which is, the, which is the entrance exam. Right. And and then so in June of 2002, I took the LSAT. In July, I got married. I came back from my honeymoon. I had an acceptance letter to law school. And people couldn't believe that I quit my dream job covering University of Michigan football go to law school full-time. Okay, so you went from being an eligible bachelor, uh, covering, like, doing your dream job, dealing with sports players, and then every day, you're, you know, every game, you're, like, high intensity, high excitement, and then you say, okay, you know what? I got to do something else. So now you're studying to be a lawyer. Um how, was, how, how did you like law school? Because it seems like it was just like a random decision. So how did you like law school? Like, did, it, did you take to it immediately, or did it take some time to grow on you? Well, first of all, anyone will tell you, law school sucks. Okay. <laughs> being, <laughs> being a lawyer is much more exciting. 
school is hard. And you're right. I'd been out of school for seven years. Right. So it was an, it was a major adjustment, particularly the first semester. Now, the way my law school worked, fortunately, was that we were – our grades didn't come out to the end of the year. Okay. And I, I struggled the first half, and my grades were okay. And then I found this study group after the first semester, and I guess I hit the right one because – They ended up being, let's see, there was a guy who was one in my class, number one in my class, number two in my class, number 10 in my class, and I was the dumb one at 20th in my class. Well, that that sounds like the best group to be in if you got to study with somebody. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and I I was fortunate to to find these, these people, and but I just... You know, basically three years gave up my life and because I knew that if I was going to succeed, you had to do well in law school because your grades in law school, like anything else, determine where you end up, you know, which firm. You know, right. you passed the bar exam, which I did on the first try. And congratulations on that, because I, I hear a lot uh, is very difficult, and some some people have to take it several times to pass it. Yeah, they, I mean, the national rate, from what I recall, thank God I'd never take that again, um, is 75%. So if you follow what they tell you to do, you, you're most likely going to pass. I mean, basically, it's no different than that you need in law school but it's about two and a half months of every day here's what I did I worked out in the morning so at least my body would move I I went to class from 9 to 12 I tested from 2 to 5 and then I studied from 7 to 10 and fortunately I was married so I have an amazing wife and she made sure that every day at 5 o'clock I had dinner ready, you know, right. so I could eat and relax and, and hang out, and I passed. And that's all that matters. Right. So fast forward, what is your craziest legal case you've ever had? Well, actually, it just happened. I just had a trial in uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan which is a couple hours west of me, um, on the west side of Michigan. And the case that I had, this is how it started out. The plaintiff was found on the first floor of an apartment complex with the third floor railing on top of him, on his back. That's how the case started. Okay. So... I was immediately suspicious because how does the guardrail end up on his back, right? Right. And guardrails don't usually just tip over. Come on. Right. And I'm a defense lawyer. So my job, and we work for the insurance companies, is to figure out what happened. 
there has to be more than just a guardrail. And what we unveiled was just unbelievable. Like this plaintiff was living with one girl who was pregnant and he was about to break up with her. And then he had another girl who they had a child together, but they, they weren't married, but he was majorly behind on child support and they were having a huge custody dispute the day before in court. I even had her on, had them both on video in court the day before. And then I had neighbors who heard tussling and yelling just moments before this went down. And I had my best witness in the whole case, a neighbor who was lived just down the way. And every day she would lean for a year and a half leading up to the day of this fall, she would lean over this railing, you know, because her kids would go down there and she'd yell to them. And she, she testified that not once was that thing ever loose, you know, because right. if it was loose, she would have said something. You right. know, she a mom would say something. Right. Right. So we basically, without pointing the finger, painted the aura that this was more than just a rail, that this was a homicide. And, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, they were, I mean, the guy was 33 years old. They were asking for, you know, tons of millions of dollars. And it ended up settling after a day and a half of what we, you know, we we brought it down significantly by the theme that we created. That's crazy. And and now it's like a law and order mystery of who really killed this this, this baby's daddy. Like <laughs> that's crazy. That's a crazy case. Yeah, there, I I don't know if I'll ever have another case like that one. That's for sure. I kind of hope you do. I hope that you like throughout your career you have random spurts of like you're looking at the case, you know, the case file, and you're like, oh, my God, what's going on? I hope you really do. It, you know, it, it'll make for an interesting uh, load, case load, for sure. Yeah. Some cases you just shake your head and go, did that really happen? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, so um, why did you decide to – write the the book last year you know you went from um you know covering sports your dream job to now you're a lawyer and you're having these crazy exciting cases what made you decide to become an author sure well as i told you earlier i um i didn't really leave my job as a journalist because I hated it, right? It was more economic circumstances. And I kind of caught the writing bug again and just started to write a little bit and was enjoying it. And, I mean, part of the reason, and and the book is called, by the way, Wow Your Clients, How to Land Clients and Build Long-Lasting Relationships. And as you can probably fathom, uh, I wanted to tell my story, first of all, about my fraternity um, in that book, which I do. 
But the reason for the book is, you know, I'm a shareholder in my law firm. And how I rose up, and I rose up fast, like basically made shareholder in five years. And the way I was able to do it was to bring in business. And I brought in over a million dollars of business to my law firm. And it helped me rise up, you know, above people that have been there 10 years, 15 years. And what I realized was that most lawyers who work in a law firm aren't business producers. And then I also started talking to people in other professions, like dentists and doctors and you know, everyone, we, we go to these graduate schools, and it's not fun. And they teach you the basic skills to do your job, right? But what they don't teach you is how to bring in business. And that's why I decided to kind of write the playbook for it. And whether you're wanting to bring in business but have no idea how, or you've been doing it for a period of time and you're doing okay, but you're kind of stuck in a rut. This is the book for you. And it's a easy, probably 90 minute read that you can read on a flight from Detroit to Chicago with stuff that you can put into action right away. Okay. So it's like a, um, it's like a self-help book in, um, in, in business, basically. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Okay, so um, you, just, you said you just wrote the book last year. Um, as, I'm an author as well, so I, I just like to ask, uh, you know, writing questions. Um, once you decided to write this book, how long did it take you from uh, your very first thought to the last sentence of the book to, in, in writing it? Um, well, it took a lot of rewrites and I kind of would do it, put it away, put it away. And then it took some time to get an editor and it was probably a a year and a half, the whole process till it came out, uh, December of 16, two months ago. And, you know, you learn a lot doing your own, your own book. Cause when I, when I did that book back in 1998, I was just a co-author on it. I, I didn't have anything to do with the distribution of it, the marketing, um, you know, putting it together in terms of the photos and the layout. But when it's your own book, you're in charge. So I And then I had to learn the whole Amazon world, which is crazy and difficult and overwhelming. And then I got right. an editor and an illustrator, and and now I know how to do it. Let's put it that way. Right, right. And trust me, I know with the whole uh, editing and well, Marie's an editor. Um, I don't, I don't know if you knew that, but Marie's a, a professional editor. And um, you know, I believe me, I had to get a graphic design artist and you know, um, you know, like flyer designers and online promoters and. I I know how much it takes to, you know, really get yourself out there. Yeah, and then once the book's out, you can't just sit back. I mean, it's it's about the long term for the book. 
right? It's not right. just the launch, but well, what are you doing over the next, you know, 90 days? What are you doing over the next year? I mean, you know, people should be doing what we're doing today is being on shows and talking about it and talking about your story. Right, right. So what are three key elements to finding and landing clients? Well, number one is the most important one. And it's what I call marinate. So many times I go to a conference and people just kind of come up to me, hand me their business card, and then make a beeline out of there or make sure to get mine. Do you think I'm going to give them my business? Probably not. Of course not. Right. It's too impersonal. Right. Right. When I say marinate, I mean that you have to develop, foster the personal relationship with the person you're engaging with that you meet for the first time. Because if you don't do that, you are never, ever going to get their business. Like when I meet someone, I I just kind of go back to my old, old journalism ways and just be curious. And and I don't usually ask them questions about, you know, who, who they work for and what they do. You know, usually in those first five minutes, I'm more interested in, okay, where are you from? Do you have kids? Where'd you go to school? What are your hobbies? Favorite sports teams? I'm looking to see if we can find a connection, that if we can be on common ground. Because if you find a connection, a common interest, it's it's much easier to eventually segue to get to someone's business. And then, you know, the second step is to go for broke. And after you've kind of developed that relationship, it's the moment – where you're going into their office, maybe they have some bosses or other people, and you're going to go in there and ask for their business. And that's not an easy thing to do, right? Right. It's, it's, it's hard for people. And it's, it's, it's hard for me, too, because you get nervous. You don't know when you're going to slip it in. But the way I teach people how to do this is to not think about yourself. Think about it from that other person's perspective. Why would they choose you over anybody else? And what you have to do in that moment is tap into their brain, their desires, and cater your talk to them. How is your product going to save them money? How is it going to make them money? How is it going to make their job easier? And if you paint it in that way, when you get to that moment to ask for someone's business, it's kind of a seamless transition. They're going to they're gonna want your business. And what I usually say, and I coach people to say this, is at that point you say, it's an easy thing, right? So, are you ready to start working together? And you pause. And more often than not, 
They'll say, yeah. And even if they don't right then, you're eventually going to get their business. You just have to be persistent about it, right? And then the third critical step is to dazzle. This is when you got their business, and they're handing you that first assignment. And we all are going to do a bang-up, amazing job on that, on that first one, right? And right. But beyond that, that's the key. What are you going to do to continually dazzle them, to continually amaze them, so that they're going to keep flooding you with work and tell everyone else that they know about you? So that's also what I talk about in the book is, well, what can you do to dazzle a client beyond just work, beyond just the, the day-to-day work? And, I, and it's what I go back to in the first part is about the relationship. If you know what their hobbies are, you know, like little things go a long way. What if you call your client just because you know their kid was in a big hockey tournament, and ask them how it went. How many people normally do that? Right, that doesn't happen often, yeah. Right. And then what if you got a signed copy of their favorite book from a big-time author? You think that would catch their attention? Of course. Absolutely, absolutely. So little things go a long way and you never take business for granted because maybe you've been doing their business for a couple years, five years, 10 years, but you got to keep it fresh. You got to keep doing stuff that's outside the box. That's more than just work. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And and I I think that that's been, I think that's that's something that can go over, you know, it can transcend uh, different types of business. You know, that goes for any, anybody that that's looking for clientele of any kind, you know? Yeah. And and that's why I say, I mean, I'm a lawyer, right. And get many sales events and go, and go train salespeople. Right. Because, People are so eager to get your business. They're so impatient. They don't realize that it could take six months to get a client. It could take a year. It could take three years because the moment may not be right for that other person. But a year or three years down the road, if you keep sending them stuff, the moment might be right. Right. Maybe they get their th- maybe they get your mortgage thing in the mail, and they're like, you know what? I need to refinance, and I remember that guy. He still sticks around. Maybe I'll give him a call. Right. Persistence pays off. That's some that's some really good advice, Bob. Um, I'm I'm glad you sh- you shared that with our listeners. That's really sound advice. As you know, as anyone that that's looking for clients. So, okay, um, you joined Toastmasters. Let's start with, tell everybody exactly what Toastmasters is. 
Sure. Toastmasters is an international organization that's geared to basically help people speak better. And I've been speaking on stage for probably almost a decade now. And the reason I joined Toastmasters is because I needed some practice dummies for my speeches. Like maybe I wanted to try out a new speech. Um, And basically it's a safe place because you can just let it rip in there, see what works, what doesn't work. So by the time that you go out into the public eye and give a presentation, you pretty much have an idea of what you're going to do and believe that it's going to be effective. Okay, so um, I I see in your bio that you teach uh, a seminar called The Art of Storytelling. Why is it so important to be a great storyteller in today's world? Well, there's a great quote long, long time ago. It says, those who tell the stories rule society. And storytelling, it, it, it cuts across so many fabrics of business. I mean, number one, when you go see someone speak, They're going to tell you all sorts of facts and recommendations. But if they tell you a great story, that's something that you're going to remember more than anything else. Great storytellers draw you in and paint the story of your business and why you you are or why you you basically are, are in this business and your mission. And it makes you real. It makes you human. Like I've coached, uh, you know, you know, financial advisors. You've ever been to one of those sessions right. where they where they bring you in, and they got their PowerPoint and whatever. Well, imagine what a difference it it can make if someone instead of just you know introducing themselves and going through a PowerPoint tells a personal story about their struggles with money. Their, maybe they were broke. You know, maybe they got, maybe they had to go through bankruptcy. And, and, and the customer can relate to that. Someone in that audience can see themselves inside that story. And that means that's, that's, that when they go to that means that when they go to meet with you, they're like, "This person knows what I'm going through." Right, is is more relatable. Absolutely. Well, that's you know, um, I, I never really thought about it that way because you know a lot of the uh, the people that do uh, the self help. Financial books, they always start with the story of how, you know, they went through those financial issues in order to get to where they are, and they're going to help you do it, too. And, you know, that's probably what gets, you know, people to buy their books. Right. I mean, I, I mean, for my book, I didn't just go into business. I, I talked about the fraternity story. 
right up front, right away. And, you know, look, not everyone's been in a fraternity, right? But almost everyone you know has been screwed over by another person at one point or another in their life or have been blindsided by something. And and the question is, how do you respond to that moment? These are defining moments in your life. And, and so at that point, you have a decision to make because basically you've just gotten your butt kicked. You're, you're on the canvas, lying on the ground, and you don't know if you're going to get up. And it's kind of the way I felt walking home from the fraternity, right? And some people never move on from that. They bottle up that anger inside, and, you know, they they carry resentment with them for the rest of their life. Or you can do another thing, which is the best thing to do. Find a way to move on. Put your focus and drive into something else and become great at it. So what what allowed you to be great, like um, to master and be successful in two careers? Well, I would say number one is hard work. Hard work beats talent every time. And I may not be the smartest lawyer or the best writer. I just keep going and digging and digging and, you know, basically grinding away like nobody else. Because if you're practicing something, if you're learning something, soaking it up more than anything else, and you're more prepared, you're going you're gonna to prevail. And there's, there's only a certain amount of people that have that drive. And, and that's what you really need to have is goals that are just unbelievable, that seem unattainable. You may not get there, but then you might get some you might achieve some pretty good goals otherwise. Right, along the way. Right. And you know, when I look back at, you know, my journalism career, it's because I didn't take no for an answer. I was I was gonna find that piece of evidence to add to the story. I was going to find the witness. I was going to find things to wrap up that story. And it's no different than being a lawyer. I was going to get to the bottom of that case. I was, you know, you're stonewalled one way, you you find a way. And you do the work that very few people are willing to do. And you know, there's like an Under Armour commercial with uh, Michael Phelps. I don't know if you saw it or not during the Olympics. And it talked about basically what no one, when no one sees you in the dark where you're doing all the work. Oh, yeah, I saw that commercial. Right. And then his greatness happens when, when no one's watching. Right. You know, when I think I think I saw that when he was, uh, you know, they had him swimming and 
you know, oh, they had the different athletes practicing or whatever. I saw that commercial. I mean, that's 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 true. You know, you don't become great in in the spotlight. You become great with the things you do to get into the spotlight. That's a really good point. Exactly. Okay, so um, where can people go to get your book, or or really to get your business? If I wanted to hire Bob Abramson as my lawyer, where, like, how would I get in contact with you? Sure. Um, <coughs> excuse me. You can go to www.bobabramson. That's A B R A M S O N dot com. That's my website, and it's got my contact info on there. Um, you can email me at bob at bobabramson.com. And then the book is available on Amazon. And you can get it both as a uh, ebook and as a paperback book. And then I also okay. have a Facebook uh, business page as well. Go ahead. Tell us your Facebook business page. Is it, is it under your name? Yeah, it's just under my name, Bob Abramson. Okay. Well, um, I'm I'm really glad to have you share your story, especially, you know, I know there are a lot of other people, you know, so many people pledge specifically, and not everybody makes it. You know, a, a large percentage doesn't make it. And, you know, yours is a great story of how you turn that around because, like you said, some people – hold on to it forever, and they're not able to pick themselves up from that moment. Yeah, and and that's why, you know, in the speeches now that I give, at the end I say, thank you. Thank you for doing that. Because that was an unexpected gift that took me to unexpected places. Right. And I'm I'm kind of, you know, I'm glad that they that they did because, you know, somebody oh, the cases you win, I'm sure they're glad that they did, you know. I'm sure, <laughs> you know, they're like I'm glad, you know, who knows what profession you would have been in had you joined that fraternity and, you know, lived that lifestyle for, you know, for those 4 years. You might have been a completely well, you would have been a completely different person. And, you know, maybe your wife wouldn't have been as happy either. You know, but you know, by the sound of some of the frat parties, you know, she might not have been as as you know happy. But um, thank you so much for calling in, Bob. Um, if you do anything else, uh, feel free to contact us, and we'll have you on the show again. All right, um, thanks so I've, much. I've for enjoyed me. this so much. Yeah, it's been so much fun. Sorry, your partner couldn't be uh, around. Hope she feels better. And thank you. We'll talk soon. All right. Have a good night. You guys, this has been the Ms. Reason Show. Uh, Follow us on, um, we're on every social network under the Ms. Reason Show. Uh, Thank you, guys. Good night.